Hallelujah. Father, this day we celebrate the great salvation that purchased our souls on Calvary's tree. As we have sung about these things, commemorating that moment that purchased our salvation. And as we've praised you this day for applying these realities to our souls, that from the depths of our being, we acknowledge and confess Christ as our Lord and Savior from our sin and the judgment it deserves. We now pray that you would open our ears to hear the glorious and manifold revelation of your gospel and its applications that will, Lord, proclaim your truth from now until all end of time. It is our deep heart's desire to add to our faith understanding that we may more fully reflect the glory that has saved us, that we might be transformed into the image of Christ our Lord. We pray with our message last week that you would add to our obedience, knowledge, desires, and faith, that we might grow in our faithfulness, realizing that in your law, in your truth, in the way that you have laid out before us, that we are able to walk in through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit because of our regeneration is glorious promises and glorious hope of a future and the joy and privilege of joining with the great project of all the ages of shining the message of hope in Christ alone to as many as you call us, for as many years as you give, for as many years as you tarry. Thank you, Lord. Assist us, we pray, through the means of grace in this service to be better equipped to be your church. As we listen, Lord, we pray that it would be you that use this message to speak to our hearts and that it would be your spirit that quickens it to our understanding and translates it into God-glorifying, Christ-obeying action. In his name we pray. Amen. Praise God. What a gracious gift and opportunity we have to turn in our scriptures to consider the Holy Word of God. If you have your Bible with, I'd encourage you to turn to Genesis 31 and let us continue as we chronicle the life of Jacob in verses 17 through 35. Genesis 31, 17 through 35 will be our primary text today. This is the chapter, of course, where Jacob leaves Pat and Aram in the employ of his father-in-law Laban and sets his face and his family towards Canaan and the promises of God. The God of his fathers, Abraham and Isaac, is increasingly his own as he seeks to be obedient to the covenant and the call to leave behind the promises of this world and set before the promises of God's covenant. The uh, aim of this morning's message is to strengthen our faith for the test of human intentions. The test of human intentions, what might that uh, comprise? Well, the purposes of our enemies, those who stand against us, the seed of the serpent, as it were. Our text today has lessons and encouragement for us when we face enemies along our path of faithfulness towards Christ. Jacob certainly faced them. And he recognized in his testimony what all saints do, that the plans of God, when they are uh, in conflict with the plans of man, always succeed. That's the title of this morning's message, Plans of God versus Man. So with your Bible and your hearts open, would you stand for the reading of God's Word today? Out of reverence, we take this gesture of submission to the Lord and standing for the reading of His Word as we consider today Genesis 31, 17-35. Hear now the Word of God. So Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels, He drove away all his livestock, all his property that he had gained, the livestock in his possession that he had acquired in Padan Aram, 
to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel stole her father's household gods. And Jacob tricked Laban, the Armian, by not telling him that he intended to flee. He fled with all that he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face towards the hill country of Gilead. When it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. But God came to Laban, the Armian, in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country, and Laban with his kinsmen pitched tents in the hill country of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, What have you done that you have tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? Why did you flee secretly and trick me? And did not tell me, so that I might have sent you away with mirth and songs, with tambourine and lyre. And why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? Now you have done foolishly. It is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And now you have gone away because you longed greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? Jacob answered and said to Laban, Because I was afraid, for I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. Anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live. In the presence of our kinsmen, point out what I have that is yours and take it. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. Verse 33, So Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and into the tent of the two female servants, but he did not find them. And he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. Laban felt all about the tent, but did not find them. And she said to her father, Let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the way of women is upon me. So he searched, but did not find the household gods. This is the word of God. You may be seated. May our faith be strengthened for the test of human intentions through the lessons that we learn of God's sovereignty in spite of human frailty and sin in our passage today. As events of Jacob's departure from Paddan Aram unto Canaan unfold, sinful and flawed patterns of behavior continue to mark this journey. Clearly, Jacob's spiritual maturity is still a work in progress. This is evident in our passage today. He has made some strides, we see in this chapter as well, but there is still ground to gain. While the actions of his wife and father-in-law, on the other hand, remain quite reprehensible, it would appear, Laban and Rachel. Once again, in our text, as we've said time and again through our Genesis series, the only true noble hero in this story is Yahweh, the unchanging Lord of the covenant. Without him, surely, long before this, everything would have fallen apart. However, the long-suffering one true God of Abraham, Isaac, and increasingly Jacob, is showing himself powerful in spite of the flaws of his servant, the called patriarch. The power and plans of God shine brightly in our text today against the admittedly shady background of human sin and weakness. In addition to Yahweh, Jacob, Rachel, and Laban, so let's consider those four characters in our text today. 
There's a fifth character or feature in the story. That would be the false gods of Laban's household. They appear in this account as well. They appear in contrast, or there, there is a contrast between them, the Hebrew word is teraphim, and that, which means household gods, and Elohim, which is the Hebrew word for the one true sovereign of creation and salvation. And this contrast is incredibly profound. The end of the text that I read today is interesting and weird at first glance, but it illustrates something profound. And that would be the difference between the teraphim, the household gods, whatever the gods du jour, the preferred worldview of the day is, and the one true never-changing God, Elohim, Yahweh, the true sovereign of creation and salvation. In this sequence of events, the glory of God is magnified and sinful idolatry is condemned in spite of the mixed motives of Jacob's dysfunctional family. This concept of stories within a greater story is a pattern in all of history. In the kind of everyday story, we have this conflict and these events and this drama within this family and them confronting one another and the awkward conversations and events. But within this, the Bible is telling a bigger story or overarching this, the Bible is telling a bigger story still. And how these stories relate speaks to the sovereign hand of God. This concept of a greater story overarching the smaller stories in history will play out not just in Jacob's life, but it has in the lives of those who preceded him. It will play out, especially as we see in detail in Joseph, the story of Moses, another great example, in the cross of Calvary, and yes, even in our day, proving that God is the author of all history and has a purpose in all events. Our text teaches this. An encouraging lesson from the candid moments in the troubled lives of old covenant figures is proclaimed to us from this chapter of Jacob's life. And this is the lesson. Despite the intentions of man and all his fallen perversion, God works all things together for the good of his elect and for the amplification of his glory. And of course, that is a message, Romans 8.28, a favorite verse of many. But that verse is illustrated so powerfully in our text. Despite the intentions of man and all his fallen perversion, God works all things together for the good of his, of his elect and the amplification, that is, the magnification, the proclamation, the broadcasting of his glory. In spite of unrepentant sinners and work-in-progress believers, unrepentant sinner like Laban, work-in-progress believer like Jacob, his purposes are established and his plans are fulfilled. Praise his holy name. The heading for today's message under three categories is the sovereignty of God in light of the following. You could phrase it this way as well, the sovereignty of God in spite of the following. So let's consider God's power in light of Jacob's escape, which is kind of the first element of our story, verses 17 through 21. Laban's pursuit, following him, 22 through 30. And Rebekah's theft, stealing his gods, verses 32 through 35. Jacob's escape. Laban's pursuit, Rebekah's theft. What do these teach us about the sovereignty of God? Let us consider that this morning. First of all, Jacob's escape. So Jacob's escaping. Well, why is he running away? Well, there's motives for his escape. Under each one of these headings, Jacob's escape, Laban's pursuit, Rebekah's theft, we have three subheadings or three uh, subpoints. Motives, method, and message. 
What are the motives behind Jacob running away? What is the method and means that he uses to escape his father-in-law, what he fears of him? And then what is the message of this situation? That's the basic framework with which we'll consider our text today, Jacob's escape. Verse 17, as the story unfolds, we find this chapter opens with Jacob making preparations to go to Canaan, but he's doing so in a secretive manner. Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels. He drove away all his livestock, all his property that he had acquired in Paddan Aram, to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. Is Jacob doing something wrong? Well, perhaps the right answer is yes and no. In one sense, he has not stolen anything. All that he is taking is rightfully his. Rebecca, on the other hand, that's a different story. We'll get to her later. Jacob is taking just what he has lawfully, contractually, and by the grace of God acquired, and he, as a free, independent, sovereign over his family, leader over his home, is making this decision to leave. However, he's doing it in a secretive manner. Could it have been done in a better way? Yes, I suggest. Later, we'll contrast these actions with Genesis 24 to kind of get a picture of what's missing here. Nevertheless, he drove away his livestock and he put Padanaram behind him, the home of his father-in-law Laban, to go to the home of his father Isaac, Canaan. 19, Jacob had gone to shear his sheep and Rachel stole her father's household gods. And here's a key or a, key, a clue in verse 20. Jacob tricked Laban, the Aramean, by not telling him that he intended to flee. So there's that aspect of Jacob's character that's resurfacing. Jacob, the schemer, the trickster. We see it here again. He tricked Laban, the Aramean. He didn't tell him, kept it a secret. He fled, Jacob fled, with all that he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates, that would be a river in the region, and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. So how long did it take for Laban to realize uh, something's wrong? Hey, guess what? Jacob's gone. Three days. Verse 22, then it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled. So he, Laban, took his kinsmen with him, pursued him for seven days, and followed close after him unto the hill country of Gilead. So how many days between when Jacob takes off and Laban meets him? Seven plus three, ten days later. There's this confrontation. The sovereignty of God in light of Jacob's escape. What motivated Jacob to flee? Well, perhaps we could say it this way. Jacob's motives are mixed. On the good side, Jacob has shown some repentance of late. There's been a degree of turning his face towards the covenant and so taking some initiative and leadership in his family. And to this degree that Jacob is motivated by these things, it is definitely godly and it is a noble cause. Verse 31, verse 3, or chapter 31, verse 3, Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. The Lord has visited Jacob. This is the God of Bethel, graciously reiterating his promises and his calling to Jacob yet again, now some 20 years later, saying, Put Padanaram, the place that represents the tyrannical heavy hand of your father-in-law, this exile status, behind you, and set before you my word and promises. Go. And what is the promise? I will be with you. So what does Jacob do? This is a good thing. Verse 4, he sent and called Rachel and Leah from the field where his flock was and said to them the following. And here we have this speech, a patriarch. We're hearing a changed heart. He's taking initiative. He's giving his family the word of God. He's setting a course for the purpose of his home. He says, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that I have served your father with all my strength, your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. But God did not permit him to harm me. 
Then he gives a record of his integrity per the word of God and then testifies of what the angel of the Lord said in verse 11. He said to me in a dream, Jacob, I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see. And again, the blessings of the flocks that God had given him are in view. And then the message closes, verse 13, I am the God of Bethel. This is Jesus Christ revealed in pre-incarnate form in a theophany, which means a visitation of God himself in a way that Jacob can tangibly interact with. He says, I am the God of Bethel, where you, were anoint, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. And here's the command. Now arise, go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. No doubt, Jacob is motivated by these instructions. Take up your family and your holdings and go to the land that I have promised you. This is degree of uh, repentance is evident. He displays a growing conviction. The Lord has spoken and that Jacob is addressing his family, teaching them the word of God and setting a course for their actions. This is in stark contrast to the passive dysfunction that has marked his family thus far. And the chapters preceding this is quite pathetic indeed, but something has changed. Jacob is growing in the grace and the call of being a father of the faith, a patriarch, a leader for his family. Nevertheless, Jacob still battles his flesh. And this, I submit, is why he did these things in secret. As we pick up on how, you know, the method that he, he uses in going away secretly, we understand that there's a motivation here as well, mixed motivation. It wasn't just the law of God, God that moved Jacob to flee, to escape such as he did, but something else as well. So why is it, we ask this question, why did Jacob arise? Um, and presumably, by the way, if it took three days for the message of his departure to reach Laban, perhaps we can assume that Laban was three days away, shearing his flocks in that other location. Um, you know, transportation was more limited. And of course, the vast expanse that was necessary to feed large flocks and where you could find water and pasture land varied. So there could be days journey between one encampment and another. This appears to be the case. Jacob strategically waited until Laban's, perhaps with his sons in this alternate location, where Laban keeps his flocks three days away so he can get like a three-day head start because he knows Laban's going to follow him as soon as he finds out. So J uh, Jacob drives his flocks and leads his family out of Paddan Aram. Three days later, the word comes to Laban. And then, after Laban finally catches up to him, there's four questions. What have you done? Why did you flee secretly? Why did you not permit me basically to say goodbye? And why did you steal my gods? Four questions. What gives? Laban is confronting Jacob. What was Jacob's answer? Verse 31. Jacob answered and said to Laban, Because I was afraid, for I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. So Jacob is conflicted. Yes, he's motivated by the word of God, but there are conflicting motivations. He's also, in these actions, motivated by fear. Now, this morning we sang a song, and I took a little shot on my phone because this bridge of our first song, I believe that we sang, was meaningful and applies to our text today. All fear be reminded, my future is secure. Oh, my Father has spoken, and He keeps His every word. What a great song. What a great line that we sang this morning. Does it not apply to our text? For Jacob, he wrestled with fear of his father-in-law. But what was the hope or what was the answer to that fear? Running away secretly, getting the three days head start, 
It didn't really do the trick. Ten days later, Laban caught up anyway. His fear needed to be reminded that his hope was not in his trickery or schemes, but instead his future was secure, Jacob's was, because his father had spoken. God had given him the Emmanuel promise at, at Bethel and reiterated it when he was in exile, so to speak, at Pat and Aram. And he keeps, that is, God keeps his every word. When we fear, it is to doubt the assurance that God gives us. When we take actions that are not in line with a proper testimony of faith in God and his word, but instead betray a fear that enemies are going to overtake the promises of God and edge us out from the security of what's assured in the gospel. This betrays a room for growth in our lives and sin to be repented of. Our fear needs to be reminded, just like Jacob's did of old, that our future is secure. Why? Because God has spoken. What is more powerful, the word of God or the capability of Laban to inflict harm? The word of God or the arm of man? The arm of God or the arm of man? The weapons of our enemies or the right hand of God the Father? Which is more powerful? Our fear betrays a lack of faith. Thus, Jacob's escape was motivated not just by the word of God, but a mixed motivation, fear as well. The method that Jacob chose also was questionable as a result of these motives. He was back to his scheming, back to his trickery. He tricked Laban on the third day, likely indicating the distance between them. As we said before, uh, Jacob, or the news of Jacob's escape reaches Laban's ears. Contrast this with Abraham's servant in chapter 24. So a great parallel passage chapter to consider our passage today is the account of Abraham's servant going to find a wife for Isaac. Do you remember this? Genesis 24.1. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. He commissions his servant, right? Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all he had, Put your hand under my thigh, make this vow, swear to me, and so forth. And he sends his master, his servant, on his way. Now, imagine this. You're a servant heading into a strange land to find a bride that will carry forth the seed of the Messiah for the son of your master, who is a covenant son. If you get this wrong, all of history, the Messiah, the lineage, the hope, the covenant depends upon it. And so there's plenty of room for uncertainty, anxiety, and fear. But where does Abraham's servant turn? Does he turn to trickery? No, he turns to prayer. In verse 12, he said, O Lord, God of my master, Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master, Abraham. And then, of course, he asked the Lord for a sign. If the woman who says, I'll give you water and so forth by the spring, of course, you know, he'll know that that is the wife for his master's son. This, of course, happens. And after Rebekah is shown to him in this supernatural way, the man of verse 26, Abraham's servant, bowed his head and worshiped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. So what is a way or what is a means, a method that is better than Jacob's trickery? Well, it's exemplified by this servant. That task that is too big for you, that requires the sovereign hand of God, that has fearful consequences if it shouldn't work out, 
How do you prepare yourself for that? Listen sincerely to the Word of God. Spend time in prayer and then worship the Lord. Word, worship, and prayer. Prepare the heart of this servant in this task of finding a needle in a haystack without any tools in and of himself to do so. It set him on the course to be successful in his journey, and it gave him confidence to return and to speak clearly. To speak clearly to who? Well, in fact, to Laban himself. Finally, when it comes time for Rebekah to go, Abraham's servant heard their words in verse 52. He bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. The servant brought out some gifts and so forth for Rebekah. And they said to him, send me, or, and he said to them in verse 54, send me away to my master. Her brother and her mother said, let the young woman, this is, by the way, this is Laban speaking years ago. Let the young woman remain with us a while. This is Jacob's mom, remember, who's in question, the young woman. Remain with us a while, at least 10 days. After that, she may go. But he, the servant, said to them, Do not delay me, since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. They said, Let us call the young woman and ask her. They called Rebekah and said to her, Will you go with this man? She said, I will go. Do you see the difference? between the confidence and the forthright request of Abraham's servant and the trickery of Jacob, the servant who had gained confidence by the word, the worship, and, the, and prayer to Almighty God, and then recognizing that God, in his answer to his prayer, was fulfilling his request, he just said with clarity, God has spoken, no time to waste, grant me your daughter, Rebecca, and let us return right now. And what does Laban say? Well, let's ask her. They asked her, okay, and go. This is a better testimony than Jacob's escape, I suggest. Why? Because it exemplifies a dependency and a faith on the God who has spoken. And it is more in accord with motives that are rooted in faith in his holy word. It is less governed and co-opted by fear of man. Motives, method, and finally message. In Jacob's escape, what is the message? Well, whereas his motives were mixed and the method was questionable, the message is clear. Now, what is that message? There is no reason to doubt four things. Exodus calling, Emmanuel promise, prophetic word, and divine intervention. Had God given Jacob sufficient grounds for, for confidence in his journey back to the promised land? He certainly had. He gave him sufficient grounds for confidence when he said, Return to the land of your fathers, Exodus calling. To your kindred, I will be with you. Emmanuel promised. You are called to leave a place of exile. I have equipped you and appointed you to go to the land of promise. Worried about what that journey might entail? How your father-in-law might react? No need to fear. I will be with you. If the God who can open up the eyes of Jacob and extend a stairway from heaven down to Bethel, has spoken. Is there any reason to doubt that he will prevent a Laban from using force against his daughters to prevent the Exodus call of his appointed son back to Canaan? Absolutely not. Exodus call and this Emmanuel promise. And just to add even more reasons for confidence, the angel of the Lord had said to him in a dream, this is divine intervention through prophetic word, 
And when Jacob says, here I am, of course, he gets this message to lift up your eyes and see. All of these goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled. I've seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, this prophetic word. He has seen the tyranny of the father-in-law, and he has blessed Jacob in spite of it. So this prophetic word ought to be enough when considered for what it is to give him confidence in his journey. I am, the pill- I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Arise, go out from this land, and return to the land of your kindred. Covenant assurance. Exodus calling, Emmanuel promise, prophetic word, covenant assurance. These are sufficient to seal, even if a divine intervention is required to stand in the way of Laban's intentions, the message is clear. God's word is sufficient grounds for confidence. Focus on that. Not the fear of man, but fear of the Lord. Was Laban, did, well, let me just ask this question. Was Laban right in his assessment of, I'm sorry, Jacob right in his assessment of Laban's character? Well, yeah, I mean, he understood Laban quite well. Laban was prepared to use force, it would appear, to prevent his daughters from leaving, and Jacob, and these flocks, and so forth. But notice what happened in verse 24. God came to Laban, the Aramean, in a dream by night, and said to him, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Does that language sound familiar to you? Turn you back to Genesis 24. After God had so obviously spoken... To Abraham's servant, Laban and Bethuel answered Genesis 24, 50 and said, The thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. And again, in our text, God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Isn't that interesting? Well, Laban was not a believer. I don't believe in any stretch of the imagination. I believe Laban is a good representative of the seed of the serpent. Laban is a contemptuous man. He's greedy, and he's willing to use every tool at his disposal to manipulate and secure whatever wealth, riches, and his position possible. But what has God done? Twice he's intervened, and he's overridden the motives and intentions of Laban and said to him, you better withhold judgment in this this situation if you know what's good for you. When God himself shows up in a dream, and shakes you by your shoulders, so to speak, and says, you better straighten up and do what I say. You better believe even an unbeliever will cower in fear. God brings kings and tyrants to their knees. doesn't matter how much land they control, how tall their pyramids are, or how many flocks they have spreading into the horizon of Pat and Aram. When God shakes you by the shoulders, you stand at attention. And even if that shaking is mere judgment, and not necessarily leading to repentance, Pharaoh eventually submits after all his gods are defeated in the ten plagues of Egypt and says, finally submits to Yahweh and and lets God's people go. And in the same way, Laban is shaken awake in the night hour by the sovereign hand of God. Let my servant go. And even though he has some harsh words with Jacob when they meet, eventually he says, Jacob, we need to do a covenant here. A covenant, why? Because Laban was repenting? No, A covenant because he knew at that point by divine intervention that the sovereign hand of the creator of the universe was behind Jacob and he dared not lift a finger against God's anointed. In fact, he probably should make an arrangement here so that he's not, you know, killed. 
So that's the way things went. The message was clear. Exodus calling, Emmanuel promise, prophetic word, covenant assurance. These are sufficient to secure Jacob's safe passage. So this is the sovereignty of God we see in our text, in spite of or in light of Jacob's escape. And secondly, we see more of the sovereignty in God in light of Laban's pursuit. Overlapping with our last passage, we see a little more detail in verses 22 through 30. When it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, he, Laban, took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. What do you guys think? We covered the motives of Jacob, the covenant as well as fear. What do you guys think are the motives of Laban? Well, there's straight evil, I submit to you. Covetousness and greed figure into it for sure. 31.1 Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's, and from, which wasn't true, by the way. And from what was our father's, he has gained all his wealth. The, any uh, advance or any increase in Jacob's flocks at the expense of Laban in any way was considered a real problem, both for Laban and his sons. It says in verse 2, And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers in so many words. Suffice it to say that what's betrayed here by Laban's sons is a motive that Laban himself no doubt shared, covetousness and greed, coveting Laban's blessing, or Jacob's blessing in his growing flocks, and greed. Hey, if it wasn't for my flocks, he wouldn't have any. Yeah, we had an agreement, but uh, Laban was not the type to uh, keep to a contract or a covenant because he was motivated by covetousness, by breaking God's law, and by greed in his heart. Uh, kids, uh, who's seen Finding Nemo? Show of hands, Finding Nemo. So um, here's a little trivia question for you. What's the seagull's favorite word? Seagull's favorite word. Mine. Yeah, remember over and over again? Mine, mine, mine. That's basically the attitude of Laban. Mine, mine, mine. What have you done? You have tricked me and taken away my daughters. Mine, like captives of the sword. Why do you flee secretly and trick me? Mine, and you steal my gods, mine, and just, you can hear it, can't you? As a seagull chirping, the only thing they know is self-centeredness, selfishness, greed. Laban worshipped himself, yeah, he worshipped these other gods too, but it was all in service of his greed and his self-centered desires to gain for himself at the expense of God's law, at the expense of his family members, as much uh, blessing and prosperity as he possibly could. More so than just this, though, is resentment and anger. It's clear that he is not a happy camper. Laban overtook Jacob, and when he finally catches up to him, in spite of being shaken awake in the night and being put in his place by God Almighty, still he inquires and confronts his nephew, What have you done? Why did you flee secretly? There's resentment. There's anger. There's also idolatry. Why is he, or, you know, what is one of, another one of his motives? for chasing Jacob down. Well, his gods have been stolen. And this upsets him as well. You've gone, and now you've gone away because you longed greatly for your father's house, but why did you steal my gods? So, covetousness, greed, resentment, anger, and idolatry, motivated to retrieve his gods. These are the motives of the wicked one. Which motives do we fear are stronger 
than God's call and promises in our life. You see, there's a lesson here. In Laban's pursuit of Jacob, Jacob was very fearful because he saw these motives by the wicked one as a powerful force to be reckoned with. Jacob was shuddering at the thought that a covetousness and covetous and greedy, resent-filled, angry idolater would catch up to him. Sometimes we can be guilty of this same fear, can't we? When the motives of our enemies today, the tyrants of our hour, are so evil, they're willing to break all of God's laws, they're so resentful, it seems like there's no inner governor that would stop them. It's, uh, they're willing and able, in many cases, to transgress you know, the laws that are written down and the contractual arrangement that we have uh, with our government even, or with our fellow man, in order to advance themselves at our expense. In a culture and in, in a situation increasingly hostile to our convictions and our position as Christians and our worldview, these kinds of motives are increasingly apparent by our own enemies today. Nevertheless, the message from Laban's, or the lesson, one of them, from Laban's pursuit is that Laban's motives were not stronger than the sovereign hand of God. What about Laban's methods? Well, Laban was certainly willing to use force. He said in verse 29, Is it in my power to do you, is it in my power to do you harm? Or I'm sorry, it is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, So Jacob was correct in his assessment that this was one of the methods that Laban would use if he could. Laban uh, answered, or uh, Jacob answered and said to Laban in verse 31, Because I was afraid, for I thought that you would take your daughters by force. Force is always a method used by the tyrants. You know, some of you might be gripped with some of the news stories, as I am, particularly in Canada, where a trucker convoy has parked their rigs, uh, and they're, what they're advocating for, as I understand it, is that the Charter of Rights guaranteed to Canadians would stand, even the wake of this ostensible crisis, namely a pandemic, and that their right not to have a forcible, irreversible injection, you know, mandated in order for them to cross lines between countries and so forth. So they have this conviction, and there they park their trucks, and they make a peaceful stand, right? Well, this angers and upsets the powers that be, particularly Justin Trudeau. So you have a conflict. You have tension, a tense situation. Saw a video yesterday of someone being trampled to death by the forces, or by government uh, agents that are willing to use force in this situation. Well, in there you see a good illustration of what it looks like sometimes when the battle lines are drawn between good and evil, between righteousness and the tyrant, between someone in Jacob's camp, the seed of the woman, and someone in Laban's camp, the seed of the serpent. I'll let you judge for yourself the merits of that exchange. Suffice it to say, I agree with them, but suffice it to say that it's a good illustration of the lines that are sometimes drawn in taking a stand for righteousness and the power and the powers that be that oppose us. Are they motivated? Are their methods uh, akin to those of Laban? That is, is it sometimes a or the cross that we must bear? Is that sometimes forced by the tyrant? Certainly, but not just force, shame. Do you see the methods that Laban used to uh, confront Jacob? Laban said to Jacob in verse 26, for instance, What have you done that you've tricked me? In verse 27, Why did you flee secretly and trick me and did not tell me, so that I might have sent you away with mirth and songs, with tambourine and lyre? 
Why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? Now you have done foolishly. Do you guys believe that? Do you believe that if Jacob had not tricked Laban, that Laban would have said, Oh, you know, I sure would wish to have you around. You've been a blessing to my flocks and herds, but let me say goodbye to my daughters and my uh, granddaughters and grandsons, and then you may be on your way. No, there's no way. But he is making the false claim here. Why? To shame Jacob. You have tricked me, and you should be ashamed. You didn't even let me say goodbye. You are an evil man, Jacob. And so this false accusation that's implied in his statement is meant to shame Jacob. This is a tactic that the enemy uses. Power, he uses force, he uses shame. He uses deception. Laban, of course, is no stranger to deception. He was a better trickster in some ways than Jacob was. And we see that in the back and forth in the course of their 20-year relationship. And, of course, he uses intimidation. You know, it's in my power to do, to you, to do you harm. It's an intimidating thought. No doubt Laban sought to intimidate Jacob. Why is he speaking in this way? That's true, because God has shaken him awake He's in Gilead. He's not going to lift a finger. But he knows that Jacob doesn't necessarily know that. So he's going to do everything he can, short of lifting a finger, because God has intervened, to intimidate Jacob, to uh, turn his face from the covenant back to tyranny. These are methods that the evil one uses. Force, shame, deception, and, and intimidation. These are motives that mark the enemy's plans. Covetousness, greed, resentment, anger, and idolatry. What is a sufficient fortification against these things? Well, I submit to you, again, it is the Word of God. And once again, as we see the character of Jacob growing, isn't it interesting that he eventually does respond in confidence? Verse 36, then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. When you read that, you almost go like, yeah, it's about time. How about a little righteous anger here, Jacob? You've let this guy steamroll you, and it's not just a personal matter either. You've let this guy break God's law and manipulate and seek to stamp out and stand in the way of God's covenant intentions through which the Messiah would arrive. It's time for some righteous anger, for you to stand up, lead your family, and stand up and put the enemy of God's purposes in his place. So the timid Jacob, who just days before had used trickery to oppose Laban, now just speaks clearly the word of God holding Laban accountable for his contractual obligations, falling short of his covenant. He says, what is my offense? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? And so forth. And we'll cover that more later. But this key verse in verse 42 says, If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Jacob, Isaac, excuse me, had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. In other words, I would have no flocks and nothing to my name. What does Jacob confess? God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. When you read the scriptures, let's just take Psalm 2 for instance. What are you reading? You're reading a rebuke of the tyrants of our day, of the powers that be, whoever they are, a petty tyrant who rules his family with a heavy hand, or a self-important, self-exalted governor, prime minister, president, who seeks to usurp 
the word of Christ by ruling according to his preferences, intentions, and the idols of our day. When you read the Bible in Psalm 2, you are reading a rebuke of the tyrant. Jacob knew that God had rebuked Laban in the night because that was a testimony. When you read the scriptures that exalt the power and the sovereignty and the glory of Jesus Christ and put the enemy and the tyrant in their place, this is a source of confidence for you that if you were ever put in the place where you have to defend yourself and your family and your convictions against the covetousness, the greed, the resentment, the anger, the idolatry, the force and the shame and the deception and the intimidation that might face you today, that is a sufficient source to give you confidence to stand resolved and to put the enemy in his place. Not because you exercise your force of personality, no, because you're echoing the word of God. You're speaking with authority as his delegated agent saying, God has said thus and so. Thus says the Lord, and then quotes scripture. <clears throat> That's the message of Laban's pursuit. The message is clear. As far as Laban is concerned, the message is this. If you do not comply with the true sovereign by repentance, God will twist your arm in judgment. If you do not comply with the true sovereign, you know, kings and rulers of this land, kings and rulers of Canada, kings and rulers of this globe over, if you do not comply with the true sovereign, he will twist your arm in judgment. Do we not feel the arm twisting right now as inflation gets higher and higher? And politicians are shaking in their boots. Do we not feel the arm twisting as the fear of public health has held an entire world, almost 120 nations, in the grip of paralysis and paranoia for like two years? Do we not feel the twisting arm of God's judgments as we see how weak and fragile the economic systems and supply chains and the stability of the world order truly is? The Lord is doing something in our day he is twisting the arm of the self-exalted tyrant and saying, submit, comply to me. We should pray that the Labans of our day would submit to God in repentance. Otherwise, there'll come a day where they'll cry out for the rocks to fall upon them as Jesus Christ, the one true sovereign, exercises his immutable, inarguable omnipotence and authority and rules and exercises and manifests his rule against all enemies in one fell swoop with an iron rod and the sword flaming from his mouth on the final day. The window of repentance is so small and judgment is so decisive and that day of reckoning is inescapable that the word of God calls Labans to repent while there is still time. This is the clear message of Laban's pursuit. If you do not comply by repentance, God will twist your arm in judgment. And by the way, this is true on an individual level. This is true in every human soul. If you do not comply with repentance, God will twist your arm by judgment. There's that gracious arm twisting that leads you to the cross. But there's that final arm breaking, if you will, on that final day. And that's why hell exists. And the only way to escape it is to submit to the one true sovereign before it's too late. Laban's flocks are despoiled. His daughters have disowned him. And he has been compelled by the will of God to lay down his arms. And like Abimelech of old, in Abraham's day, he is now sniveling and cowering before Jacob, seeking to be in his favor. Let's make a covenant. The tables have turned. This is the message of Laban's pursuit. One more 
category this morning to consider, perhaps the weirdest of all, Rebecca's theft and these household idols, the teraphim. Let's consider the sovereignty of God, not just in light of Jacob's escape and Laban's pursuit, but also in light of Rebekah's theft. Verse 29, we have this interesting detail. And 19, excuse me. Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel stole her father's household gods. And kids, when you hear a phrase like that in Scripture, you should kind of hear in your mind's ear, uh-oh, Rachel stole her father's household gods. Uh-oh, that's not right. Now, there's this confrontation. Jacob is unaware that Rachel has stolen these things. And the question of motive and method and so forth comes up in this case as well. Verse 33 picks up on these events. Laban went into Jacob's tent, searching everywhere, into Leah's tent, into the tent of the two female servants. But he did not find these gods. He went into Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. But now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. Laban felt all around the tent, but he did not find them. And she said to her father, these are Rachel's words, Let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the way of women is upon me. Of course, this would be reference to menstrual cycle. So he searched, but did not find the household gods. Rebecca's theft. What is her motive? Well, I think we can only assume that there was some superstitious attachment to the idols of her household that's betrayed in Rebecca's actions. If you read where this word teraphim, household god, shows up in other verses like uh, Judges 17, 5 through 6, Hosea 3, 4 through 5, Zechariah 10, 2, the context would indicate a superstitious idolatry that would motivate someone to take these idols with them presuming they had some sort of power, some sort of value. We can assume, I would suggest, that this was a motive of Rebecca's theft. There was a mixed motive in her heart as well, it would appear. She had invested some notion of power or value in these wicked trinkets, these objects of idolatry, these superstitious, you know, items. What method did she use to take them? Well, deceiving deceptive, sinful. She misled her father. She bore false witness. She stole them. She committed theft. So Rebecca's theft betrays a motive of idolatry and a method of deception and theft. But what's the message? What's the message here? Well, that's strange until you consider that these gods represented the authority by, uh, that governed Laban's household. And then the Elohim, the one true God, versus the teraphim. That was the authority that was over Jacob's household. And so this clash and this conflict between the, or between the devotees to these gods is what is pictured here. In other words, Laban versus Jacob is a proxy for teraphim, the gods of the day, you know, the spirit of the age, versus the one true God, Elohim. And how did that conflict shake down? The gods of the tyrant, the gods of Laban, they proved impotent. Did his household gods save him? He couldn't even save his household gods. They were stolen by his daughter. He couldn't even find them. His gods couldn't even tell him where they themselves were located. You see that the gods proved a stupid and ridiculous and absurd and laughable, and they were desecrated. 
His gods proved impotent, no power, defeated, destroyed, mocked, and desecrated. From the perspective of the will of Laban, it's like, oh, you better, you know, you got hell to pay. You've stolen my gods. From the perspective of God, oh, you think there's power in your gods? Watch what I will do to them. Rachel's actions serve inadvertently. This is in spite of her motives. Well, what's the message here? God is sovereign in spite of Rebecca's theft. And where do we find these gods? Rachel's actions serve inadvertently to mock and dismiss the perceived power of the resident false gods. The gods of Laban were silenced when sat upon by a menstruating woman. I mean, just to put it bluntly, but our text does as well. And it's no accident. In the text, it's stated that way to show how, all, how God, when he exercises his authority and sovereignty, humiliates and desecrates the false gods of the day. That which once was to be feared because, oh, Laban, you can see his gods must have power. He has such big holdings. His gods must have power. He has such influence. Nope. When it's right time for the teraphim Elohim showdown, who wins in the end? Elohim. Where did the teraphim end up? Under the saddle of a woman who appeals to her menstruation cycle in order to lie about the location of these gods, and they're never found by Laban. So what do we see in summary in our text today? That sovereignty of God wins the day. God's sovereignty is seen in light and in spite of Jacob's escape, Laban's pursuit, and Rebekah's theft. Even though there are sinful intentions and motivations and methods in all three of these characters, and even though these circumstances are fraught with all kinds of human depravity, nevertheless, the sovereign power of an almighty God comes out shining in spite of it all. This is the message of Jacob's life, but it is a message through the scriptures to this point, and this message will continue. So it was in the case of Joseph. Think about Joseph, no doubt, having learned these lessons, faithfully and consistently, I assume, instructed by his father, Jacob. Listen, son, when the chips are down, when you're in the captivity of a tyrant, what I've learned the hard way is that Elohim is sovereign. Never doubt it, son. And so Joseph, when he's cast into jail, believes that Yahweh is sovereign in spite of his chains. Pretty soon he's running the place. He believes that Yahweh is wise in spite of the intimidating presence of Egypt and all that that empire boasted. Pretty soon he's running the place. And he does so on the basis of revelation, the word of God that was revealed to him by dream, just as the word of God was revealed to his father, Jacob. And of course, the Exodus, who can forget this? When the deliverer, Moses, led the people out, Moses was fearful as well, was he not? I can't speak and Pharaoh's powerful. He dealt with or he wrestled with the same conflicting motives, you know, that Jacob dealt with in the past. What did God do? He set up a little gods of Egypt versus Elohim showdown. How did that go? Well, it's so awesome. And God was so pleased to show his wonders that he took like chapters 7 through 11 of Exodus to show off. As in each one of the 10 plagues, he defeated the gods that were feared and celebrated and broadcasted in that once great empire, bringing every single one of those teraphim, so to speak, to their knees and their chief representative on earth. He happened to drown them with his chariot and all his forces as the Red Sea collapsed upon the enemies of God's people. God's people were scared, to be sure, 
But if they looked to the word of God, they would have known something, the lesson of Jacob's life when he was in conflict. There is nothing to fear. When you have the prophetic word, the Emmanuel promise, the Exodus calling and covenant assurance on your side. And of course, there's no greater example of God's glory in spite of man's sin than the cross of Jesus Christ itself. I wish we had more time to go over this passage, but do so on your own time this week, would you? Acts chapter 4, 24 through 28. The faith-filled prayer of the first era, the first generation of persecuted Christians right after Jesus rose from the dead. They recognized these lessons, that although Herod, Pontius Pilate, and all the people who condemned Jesus were motivated by their wickedness, greed, covetousness, you know, resentment and anger. And though they use methods just like Laban did, evil, force, shame, and intimidation, nevertheless, they recognized that by those very means, God had defeated sin in the death of his son and defeated death in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so what did they have to fear? Nothing. And so with this knowledge and paying close heed to the proclamation of God's word, they went forth with this confidence and turned the world upside down. Can we do that? Well, we can if we take heed to the source of confidence that remains the same today as it was then. We serve a resurrected Messiah. He has spoken. And in him, we have an exodus calling out of sin and into the promised land of glory and God's redemptive purposes, yes, even for this earth. We can stand with confidence against the tyrant of our day when we remember the Emmanuel promise. Jesus Christ, by power of his indwelling spirit, will never leave us and never forsake us. And we remember, and we even have more than Jacob did, recorded in these pages here of the prophetic word. And we have the covenant assurance sealed to our souls every time we celebrate communion of that glorious feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb one day, which represents the fullness of our relationship realized with Jesus Christ and all the saints. People who have those kinds of promises need not fear the Labans, the tyrant of our day, because our God is greater. Saints, I submit to you that we're seeing a showdown in our hour, the teraphim of our day versus the Elohim that we worship. Take courage, take strength from God's word and stand. And even if your life be required of you, nevertheless, that day won't come until God has appointed. And you watch and see how God defeats your enemies. So long as he has something for you to do, you will defeat his enemies. And I just encourage you, encourage myself, encourage us to stand with the weapons of our warfare that we read of, testified to even in these scriptures, that are mighty to the pulling down of strongholds. Let us close in prayer. Oh Lord, we thank you for the exhortation and the encouragement of your word. We also thank you for the conviction of your gospel. If there are any in the hearing of this message, Lord, who fall into the camp of a Laban because they have not repented and trusted the covenant like Jacob, I pray that you would draw them in repentance and faith to their knees, confessing their sin and placing their fortunes, not in what this world promises, not in what the tyrants of today boast, but in what Jesus Christ, the victor over sin and the grave, can offer through his blood alone. And for those of us who stand with Christ and stand together, fully fortified with the armaments necessary to take ground for the kingdom, I pray that you would encourage and equip us for the challenges of our hour, so that the day when a confession is required of us and we are called to take that stand, we might do so confidently knowing that in Christ we are more than conquerors. Thank you for this reassurance from your word. I pray that you would write it on the tables of our heart. pray that we would seek to apply it this week and beyond, and as we do so, that it would bring you glory. 
In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.